you mean choose? We don't understand. Choose. Choose the form of the destructor. I couldn't help it. It just popped in there. What? What just popped in there? I... I... I tried to think. Look! No! It can't be! What is it? It can't be! What did you do, Ray? Oh, shit! It's the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man. This is War Machine. We're back and talking to Federico Campagna. I hope I'm saying that right. He's an Italian anarchist turned theologian, and quite brilliant, as you'll hear. If you didn't recognize the clip from the intro, I don't know what to tell you. Need to uh, fix that. Hopefully, the relevance will become clear as we go. Uh, in any event, this was a lot of fun, and uh, yeah, everyone should go out and at least pick up Federico's short manifesto on atheism. It's wonderful, and. It's the sort of thing you can rip through in a day or two. So this one went a bit longer than usual, and so we're splitting it into two episodes. And here is part one of our chat with Federico Campagna. Hey, ciao. How's it going? Hey, man. How you doing? Good. Where, yeah. where are you guys? It's all light. I'm in New Jersey, just uh, just a little bit west of New York. Oh, you're in the U.S. I am. Yeah. yeah. Oh. I'm uh, I'm in Oregon on the West Coast. So good morning and good afternoon. Right? <laughs> yeah, you're in London, right? Yeah, I'm in London. So, um, how's uh how's COVID treating you over there? Amazing, almost as good as you. <laughs> it's bad here, but it's bad at your place as well. So I mean, yeah. Oh yeah, no, it's a mess over here. Yeah, it's a mess here as well. How do you see things significantly changing there from COVID? Like I live in here, you know, like I said, just west of uh, uh, New York City. By the way, are we, are we recording this or this is just... Oh, yeah, we're recording. Yeah, there's been like this, well, evacuations probably not is too dramatic a word, but uh, an exodus of, you know, working folks out of the city uh, to where I live over here in New Jersey in the suburbs. You know, rents are way cheaper and all that, that sort of thing. And people are re- remote, uh, working remotely anyway. There's no, there's no real re- uh, reason to be in the city anymore. Is that sort of similar to what's happening there? Or? Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of wondering because I, I have, I have this kind of imagination that cities like small coast, coastal cities, places like Palermo or uh, Marseille in in Europe or Athens, mm-hmm. will will soon, or even smaller places, will soon repopulate massively. Because if you're working from home and you work in, I don't know a depressed area of Belgium or Northern England and so on. You might ask yourself a question, give yourself an answer and relocate mm-hmm. somewhere else. And this, in a kind of science fiction scenario, this will actually lead to a lot of consequences. Not really science fiction, quite plausible. 
you will have a lot a different type of internal migration so that people with money would migrate across and go to touristic places they will have then to refashion themselves from tourist hubs to strange kind of moneyed migration hubs, importing money basically, which will create tensions with the residents, obviously. But it would be a similar situation to Venice in the 16th century, where you would have entire neighborhoods for the German mer merchants, for the Persian merchants, for the Ottomans, for, and so on. Um, I imagine something like this would will probably begin to exist. I imagine a place like Palermo, for example, very likely. Beautiful, cheap, sunny, with an airport. You right. might as well. Yeah. So that might be a good segue kind of into, I mean, Matt's got some ideas too. He wants to talk to you specifically about your work. But um, I was listening to a talk you did. Um, it's, it's linked on your, your website. It's a talk you did with uh, Ripkoa, I think, or something like that, this Eastern, uh, Eastern European uh, art magazine, I think. Uh, and you're talking about worlds and kind of like how worlds are constructed how we make worlds right and then how like and but you're talking about in terms of like an apocalypse type type of thing where like worlds end and like that happens all the time and for the most part they're just like they just happen and can be good can be bad it just it's kind of neutral depends upon the situation so I'm, I'm wondering maybe like how you would think about kind of the metaphysics of how we build worlds um connecting that to the idea of how like this idea of the nation state or the or like the enlightenment notions of the nation state or modern notions of, of nationality may or may not be kind of breaking apart at this point and what, what uh, my look, my look like in terms of a vision after? Wow, that's a massive question. I think. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> I was just going to ask him like how, what about his childhood. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, well, I think I need to start uh, by adding a, um, a couple of disclaimers at the beginning, just to clarify. I am an anarchist. That already provides half the question, <laughs> uh, half, half the answer, and at the same time. I am, a, I mean, I think I am a very old school, um, how to say it? It's difficult to say it without misunderstanding. Let's say ecumenical humanist. So, in a, so that ecumenical humanist, not in the sense that I believe in the uh, superiority of the, of the human over non-humans and so on, but in the sense that I, I do believe like the old humanist that there is something sacred in the, in the experience of being alive. Okay as there is in everything else, but there is something that is manifestly sacred in the experience of being alive equally in anything that is to a certain extent existing or to a certain extent alive. Brackets, this doesn't lead me to any anti-abortion positions. That's, uh, that's right. a completely different thing. Just to right. clarify, because coming from Italy, this is usually <laughs> a point of contention. But, um, <clears throat> so on the, like, having said that, the, the point of, of the nation is, of course, a particular way of framing things within a frame of sense, okay? So you have this feeling of the infinity of the universe, both in terms of extension and in terms of intention. So uh, things are infinite, both in the expansion of, it, of, the, of the space, but also in the intensity of their existence. This feeling of double infinity is uh, disquieting. It's what Deleuze would, would call a feeling that leads to a deterritorialization, so to getting you outside of the map of what you know and you can control and you can navigate and shoot you into the space without directions. And you have the tendency to re-territorialize, re okay? So find again some constraints that map the ground. This is fine. This is absolutely okay. Okay, this is not a problem. Now, the problem is how you do it. 
you can do it in a million different ways and you have to do it because you have to create some boundaries around you that, um, that, 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 that somehow set the path where you can move and the things that you can understand. But there's way and way to set a boundary. For example, if you go in certain areas of Northern Europe in the old Flemish lands, there are there's still the boundaries between states that are drawn on the, on the sidewalk. Okay? And in, still in Europe, increasingly, a boundary is like a sign in the middle of a street in, <laughs> between houses. It doesn't mean anything. Still, it's there because it gives some sort of orientation, but it doesn't enact anything. Let's say the border is not alive. It is the people that traverse it that are alive, and the border is in the service of the people. Then it becomes a moment when the border becomes alive, and of course, the people become dead, because <laughs> that's usually what happens. With nations, it's exactly the same. As long as you need some sort of identification to navigate and to understand your group and your affiliation, that's fine. But first of all, the fact that you cannot at will move from one nation to the next in the sense of like, I am Italian, but I want to be Russian and I cannot do it. Okay. This is not, it doesn't depend on me. It depends on the nations as if the nations existed. This is an aberration. This is a form. Literally it's a form of idolatry. Okay. Idolatry is literally this. What was the problem with idolatry in the old Testament? <clears throat> the problem with idolatry is not so much that you make an image of God. Okay. That is, there is something mysterious in life and you try to make an image of it in order to navigate it. That's not the problem. In Christianity, especially, you can still make images of God. And even in Islam, even if you cannot represent it, geometrical images are images of God. The, point, the problem of idolatry is that you mistake the image for God. You forget God and you concentrate on the image. And the same happens exactly with this. The fundamentalism of nationalisms, for example, is a form, literally a form of idolatry. You have mistaken that the thing that is alive is the mystery. That's the thing that's alive, okay? And the rest is in its service. And you are definitely not only part of the mystery, but you are the mystery. And the migrant coming from across the road is, is the mystery. Concentrating on, on, the way, on the little tricks that we use to make sense and making them alive instead, this is idolatry. And the wonderful and fascinating thing is the amount of Christians that I, I, they, 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 they fall into idolatry. And even more fascinating, the number of Protestant Christians that fall into idolatry. One of the points of contention between Protestants and Catholics was that the Protestants used to say that Catholic churches were distracting. Too many images, all these saints and music and stuff, no? Distracting, idolatry. <laughs> and then we, right now we find ourselves in this very strange situation in which we have evangelical communities in the US, Protestant communities in the UK, and, and, and everywhere else especially them falling for this embracing nationalism. It is funny, right? There's like worried about these pesky little icons, right? But meanwhile, they'll completely give themselves over to nationalism or full endorsement of economic systems that are, that are idolatrous. I'm wondering if we can like kind of connect this into explicitly with your work, your early work with um, atheism and then the, the trajectory into your work on magic. I mean, we're already, we're already sort of talking about this in a way. Um, the discussion of idolatry, I think, makes, makes it explicit. Um, so I'm wondering if you can maybe lean into those terms a little bit. Atheism on one hand, and what you mean by atheism, um, and uh, magic, right? To give people a, kind of a sense for what you're up to and give people a sense for the overall trajectory of your thought, which I think is really interesting. It's a, it's a line that 
I think runs parallel in, in some ways, uh, to my own. And like one of the links are, are, or points of connection that I think may be relevant here is the idea that you write of, of lucid dreaming. And, you know, I'll leave it to you to talk about that however you, however you like, but I think it's worth noting that the, the, the kind of atheism you advocate for is not this facile atheism that one often run, runs into these days or what, what they normally think of, but takes that as, as its starting point, perhaps the death of God. Um, and then goes from there. But yeah, talk, can you walk us through this? How do you get from atheism uh, to magic? Can you bring us up to speed with, with that? Okay. Well, your, your questions are both existential, psychological, philosophical, and political. I okay, we'll bite off whatever piece of it you want. You know? <laughs> I, will, I, will try, I will try to, to squeeze them into a, a feasible answer. Yeah. Um, okay, one way to try to answer this, I believe, maybe, is to begin by drawing a distinction between an idol and an icon. Because you used the word icon when you were asking your question a moment ago. What is the difference between them? An, uh, an idol is exactly, is that thing which we use to obfuscate the mystery to the extent that the mystery becomes invisible and we mistake it for the mystery, okay? That's, that's often what happens when um, you substitute the name of somebody for that somebody. This could happen with the name in terms of their ethnicity, the name in terms of their gender, the name in terms of who they are and their social standing and so on and so forth. That thing takes the place of the mystery of the person and you don't no longer relate with the person, but you relate with the name. Okay, this is idolatry. What is an icon? It's the opposite. If you look, the icon, of course, is particularly famous in the Russian tradition of religious painting. And in the Russian tradition of religious painting, you have these small paintings, usually on, uh, on wood, usually square, when they're, when they're small portable icons, with a golden background and one face stylized in the front. What are these images for? Are they, the, they usually they represent the face of Jesus. What are these images for? Are they portraits of Jesus? No, they are icons. What is the difference? The portrait is a representation of somebody that tries to make it so alike to the thing that you almost mistake it for the thing, okay? That the idea is that to a, to a certain extent, you can find in the image the thing itself, but at, and at the expense of forgetting the object. An icon is the thing itself, because an icon is a window. A portrait of a landscape or a window over a landscape, that's the difference between an, an idol and, and an icon. So the icon is, that way of putting together symbolic elements and visual elements so that you don't see them, but you see through them. This is what I talk about in, in the book, Technique and Magic, when I, when I suggest the magic idea of reconstructing language. And by language, of course, I mean social institutions, culture, and so on and so forth. Our way of arranging structures of sense to make them into icons rather than to make them into idols. How is this related to my work at the beginning, which was uh, much more focused on anarchism before that book that you were kindly mentioning, The Last Night on Atheism. Before that, I published um, another book called What We Are Fighting For, which was an edited collection with lots of friends, uh, published in 2011, I think. Um, and I, I had the good luck that many of them were incredible. Some like Mark Fisher or David Graeber and many others. We were trying to set out in that book also what we were fighting for. 
I was editing the book and I also write one of the chapters, uh, which was called Squandering. And squandering is the idea of like wasting away. Wasting away what exactly? Wasting away the belief into the name of things, the belief into those names that take up so much power. And of course, they take it up from our belief. They're a bit like, you know, the final monster in Ghostbusters, the one that you, they should not think about because the moment they think about it, it acquires a shape. Oh, and the marshmallow. The marshmallow man, yeah. yeah. <clears throat> okay, but that's exactly how they acquire power. Um, the marshmallow man explains a lot of baffling baffling situations such as the rise of fascism in, in Italy in the 1920s and, and all these other things. It's that mechanism. Actually, there was a fantastic proto-anarchist writer that wrote about it in the 16th century. He was a friend, possibly lover of Montaigne. His name was Etienne de la Boissy, and he wrote this short book called um, On Voluntary Servitude. The question there was, how is it possible that a king and a handful of knights can subjugate a people of a thousand? It's because the people of the thousand don't, it's a voluntary form of servitude. Of course, it's not a way of uh, putting the burden of responsibility on the victims, but it is to remind that it is the belief in the institution that creates the institution. My point there, writing on anarchism, was exactly this, how to emancipate ourselves from these spooks. And I use the word spooks because, of course, it's not my word. I I borrow it from one of my greatest influences, uh, Max Stirner, anarchist German philosopher of the uh, mid-19th century, arch enemy of Karl Marx, who wrote a large chunk of the massive book, The German Ideology Against Him. Uh, Saint Max, he called him, mocking him. Max Stirner was an individualist anarchist, and his point in that book, The Ego in Its Own, which also I had the privilege of editing for the edition that we published at Verso Books, and I'm very, very proud of that. The book is divided in two parts. The first part is very dated and also contains some unpleasant elements, including anti-Semitism, which is in no part part of, uh, part of the theory. Okay, it was part, more like the kind of disgusting cultural atmosphere of that time in Germany. The second part of the book, however, is fantastic. It's truly one of those life-changing things. And I read it when I was younger, and uh, it did change my life, like a few other books have. Um, And in that second part, basically, it talks about the difference between what I later called normative abstractions in the book that I wrote last night, which basically are these ideas that take on such a, a power and a life that they take over you. His good example, actually, wasn't just nationality, for example, one, or gender, another one or and so on and so forth. His example was human. He said, I don't want to be called a man, but not in the sense of a male, but in the sense of a human. At the time, of course, the word meant human. I don't, I don't, don't call me a man because I'm more than that. And he said, if, it's, if it applies to God that no name can, con- can convey what he is, the same applies to me. And he said, I am the creative nothing, but the nothing out of which everything originates. On the basis of this, it creates this political vision in which people associate, not on the basis of shared spooks that hover over their heads and regulate them, but as he called them unions of egoists. And union of egoists is people that associate simply because they want to, because there is a reason to associate, because people associate not just 
to fend off the hostility of the universe, like Hobbes believed, and the hostility of each other, but also because they want to, because they have a reason to do it. And what is this reason? You don't need to say. Stirner is not like those slightly soppy anarchists of the 19th century, many others that talk about the goodness of the human being, or uh, like we, we, we just love each other naturally. No, he doesn't say that we are naturally anything, but he says we usually want to, and we can create societies on that basis. He said also, in terms of political struggle, I will always find comrades that will join my same struggle without having to swear on my same flag. And that has been always, for me, a, po a massive point of, uh, of reference. Sorry, it's a long answer, though, because it was a massive question. It's also the summary of my own life for the past 15 years. Um, yeah, I noticed that you've, uh, you've been a part of the autonomous anarchist groups in Italy. You've done some work with Franco Berardi. I, I mean, it's part of your biography. I, I didn't do a lot of diving into that. And I'm not as familiar with the autonomists there. I, I mean, I know I've read a little bit of you know, Tony Negri's work and uh, his work with Michael Hart and stuff like that. Yeah, I do a little bit of work in political theology, radical theology, and those are kind of common reference points for a lot of people who write in that field. Mm -hmm. uh, but this, this idea of, of the iconic, right, it seems to be a way to kind of, cent that could be like that centering uh, mystery, can bring communities together when, you, when it's more of an iconic modality of communal building. And I'm trying to connect like what you're talking there about um, those ideas about the iconic and kind of this voluntary going into communities or, or having a commonality with people that you don't necessarily share like life experiences or life, you know, goal, you might have similar goals, but that and breaking down the worlds that we thought you were talking about in the first kind of question or the, your first response and how like you might imagine a like a, a kind of a motif or a, or a metaphor or a modality of, of the iconic as being a centering, a centering way to look at people, right. To, to kind of build communities beyond the nation state. Yeah. I mean, this is also um, a complicated uh, question <laughs> because I personally am not um, unreservedly in favor of communities as a value in themselves. I mean, I know the experience, for example, in Southern Italy of extended big families, not always being this big family and so on is a nice thing, often is a trap and is a terrible trap. Not only women, to be honest, because in Sicily, the, the woman is actually especially powerful despite the out, outer appearances. Um, usually when mafia bosses go to jail, is the, the woman in the family that runs the clan afterwards. Um, so I'm not unreservedly in favor of communities. And in this, I share the same suspicion towards community harbored by another anarchist and a mystic, Simone Weil. Simone Weil, <coughs> French philosopher of the early 20th century, to my mind, one of the two geniuses of the 20th century. Simon Weil and Pavel Florensky were the only, to my mind, the only two true geniuses of that, of that time. And Simon Weil always warns against the idea of the community, saying, be careful, only the individual can think, feel, and be responsible. The community is an imagination, is an abstraction. The community does not think, the community does not feel, the community is not responsible. Does this translate, translate into Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher's, there's no such thing as society, only people and their families. No, definitely not. When Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher were saying that, there's no such thing as society, what they meant is there's no such thing as people. What they meant is this, <clears throat> is there is only the acquisitive element within each one. And of course, since that is the object, the aspirational, ambitious, acquisitive apart, that's, if that is the only thing that is truly existing and truly alive, 
the place where it's mostly where it's most intense is the place where it's most alive. For example, a corporation. For example, uh, you know, for example, uh, a, a corporation with a legal person without a body and without a, without a soul, without a heart, without anything. So, I I am more interested in the ex- individual experience of life of each single one. To their service goes the community. Right. Yeah, I, and I think I think that's a good clarification because I wasn't trying to like make the individual or the ego kind of subservient to a, an ideal of the community, right? And you just become, again, subservient to the community. No, no, but I didn't say, uh, to be honest, it was not really an answer to, 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 to your point so much, but also, um, uh, let's say, um, um, a side comment also to, to, to the people that surround me often. I mean, in, in, mm-hmm. uh, in the anarchist and left-wing, left-wing worlds, the, the, the community is sometimes idolized, literally. Okay. It's, not, it's not seen iconically, it's seen idolatry. Right. The icon of the individual might be a better place to focus on because we, you were talking earlier about the sacredness of life, right? This kind of this idea that, that human life is sacred in some sense. There's a there's more to me than 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 I'm aware of myself. This kind of apophatic uh, humanism, right? At the same time, you uh, you talked about Thatcher and Reagan. This idea of like the acquisitive self, the acquisitive eye, and how you're kind of reduced down to this kind of uh, intensification of this exchange, right? This the, the iconic human, the economic, or excuse me, economic man or economic person. This notion that there's a there's a mystery, mysterious or sacred sense of the eye that you know always kind of resists a full kind of totalization to the community or some other kind of uh, acquisitive monetary sense of the self, right? Absolutely. And those can be more liberatory notions that can lead to a better not sense of like community over you know the self, but different modalities of living. Yes. And I think, I mean, there's a uh, um, two-headed answer to, to that or response. Um, the first side of the response is more political. The second side is more philosophical. The political side of the response is also to show what you were talking uh, in terms of the iconic quality of the, of the individual and its sacredness. What does that really mean? Sacredness in that sense, in, in a political sense, means that within the individual, which is not only life in the sense that we understand life, I, I am alive and this glass is not alive, but life in a more radical sense in terms of existence. And we can get into that philosophically if you want in a moment. Um, that element of sacredness communicates to an overabundance within each single thing. The acquisitive part is not the important part of the, of the individual existence because the individual existence contains within itself everything, is incredibly abundant and rich, ontologically speaking, okay? Contains that thing which is ineffable and is above, ineffable means above any possible way of reducing it to language. Um, that thing, what the Hindus call the Atman, we will get into that philosophically once again, that contains in itself the entirety of the universe. Why is this a political point? Because the fact that the individual is infinitely rich within itself does not mean that it doesn't need anything or it should be treated as if it was not in need of anything. So you're rich within yourself. Yeah, you know, just go and die on the street. No, it's not like that. It's the opposite. Socially speaking, we know very well that there is a tendency to respect and bow in front of the rich rather than in front of the poor. There is something within wealth that communicates a necessity to respect it. 
these, these necessities usually misunderstood in an idolatrous way by worshipping the exterior wealth. What I'm suggesting is that within the individual, there is such an incredible abundance of wealth, which deserves politically the same respect and privilege that is usually assigned to other inferior types of wealth. That's the reason why the rich get everything for free. The rich get everything in, uh, in, as a homage. And that's the reason why universally then, and for example, an anarchist program, a communist anarchist program then sees the, 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 the need to respect individuals as infinitely wealthy. The second part of that has to do with, um, with, with the philosophical aspect of, of, the, well, let's say of the sacredness of the, of the individual. And we need here to differentiate uh, on the basis of the meaning of, of words. When we talk about sacred and profane, the distinction, no? the sacred and the profane, if there is something sacred, there is something profane. What is the big distinction between them? The distinction is that there is a separation. There is a cut between one and the other. This is usually the, um, recognized in the, in the word that stands for the place of the sacred, the temple. Temple comes from the uh, ancient Greek temnin, temnein, present first person, temno, I cut. Temno, temple, okay? So there is a cut that separates the one from the other. The temple, however, is not just um, an architectural building. The temple is an element within existence itself. Within existence itself, there is an area that is the place inhabited by the gods, translated less metaphorically, Within existence, within each object, within, within each existence, there is a dimension that belongs to that realm that mythologically we describe as the realm of the gods. The gods, not just the Greek gods, but also the gods of Christianity, of Islam, of Judaism, the gods of, of, of Hinduism, and so on and so forth. The gods are those things that are outside of time, for example, outside of space. Recall that in Greek mythology, Kronos, from which, I don't know, a chronometer comes from, Kronos, the embodiment of time, vomits out its children, and its children are the Olympian gods, who are vomited outside of time, while we remain inside, obviously. You know? So that part, that dimension of the existence that is outside of time, outside of space, outside of the reach of language, is within each single thing. This is, of course, not some strange idea that just dreamt up yesterday <laughs> under the shower. As René Guénon used to remark, nobody dare say that I say anything original. Nothing I say is original, and nothing I say is new. And that's why it, it makes sense to say it. <clears throat> if you want later, I can disclose all the references behind all these things. But, uh, the, but this aspect of um, the ineffability, the incomprehensibility within reality is being explored, for example, I think about in terms of Western modernity by Kant when he realizes that what we can say about the world around ourselves has to do only with what we can see. That is, is a function of our ability to perceive, is a function tells us a lot about our perceptive apparatus and tells us very little about the way things actually are. This was a great achievement in Western modernity. Of course, this achievement had been already uh, achieved a few hundreds of years earlier, not only in Europe, and not to be honest, at the time we can talk about the Mediterranean region more than Europe. Europe didn't exist, uh, but also in India. There is a dimension within everything that we see. There is an aspect that is beyond what we can perceive. It is obvious if you think about sounds. 
there are sounds around us that we cannot hear because our ears can only perceive a certain frequency. That doesn't mean that those other frequencies don't, don't, don't exist. So we invent machines that can hear them. And there's still frequencies above what the machines can hear and so on. The same with colors. We can see only a certain spectrum. And the same with, with everything. The reality, as it is disclosed to us, is incredibly partial. We can only see an element of that. There is much more. That much more is the ineffable. That is what we cannot reduce to words. And that thing is the sacred within the person. The problem and the interesting part of that is that that thing that is within the person within me is the same thing that is within you. Not the same in the sense that we have two dollars, one each, and they're both one dollar. Not in the same of being the same dollar. Numerically, identically the same thing, okay? To the point that then that sacred within you is that sacred within me. Why do I use the word sacred, though? Doesn't this put off any people? Shouldn't I use some sort of fancy, snazzy, contemporary philosophy, ontological vocabulary? I could, if I thought that I was inventing the wheel for the first time, or, I, or if I was the inventor of fire every time I light my lighter. But I'm not inventing fire when I light my lighter, because theology has dealt exactly within, within this problem, it has dealt exactly with this for a very long time. And so, for example, in my books, I look at Hindu theology a lot, Christian theology in the, in the, late, in the, in the book that is coming out in a few months more, and Islamic theology uh, massively. That's one of the main centers. Um, so that's, what, well, that's why I use that theological vocabulary. This has been a passage for me, because when I was talking about radical atheism, I, I understood negatively the kind of religion that I did not want. And then later I realized the kind of relationship with the theological vocabulary, the theological immense wealth of thought, immense, that is so underused at the moment. Uh, and, then, and then at that moment I started really embracing that type of vocabulary. And this led, of course, to a, to a series of transformations in the way I think uh, and uh, in the way I live. Yes. You know, the comment that you made about the way that the temple represents an ontological cut, you know, that idea of, uh, makes me think, um, we just spoke last week or the week before with, um, a guy, uh, Tommy Lynch, who's a theorist here in the States, who's doing some interesting things with political theology. And he just wrote a book called, uh, apocalyptic political theology that explores, you know, apocalypticism through folks like Taubes and Schmidt and Malibu. Um, some of the usual suspects, <laughs> I suppose, <laughs> maybe not so usual, but anyway, he describes our world, uh, which is to say, arguably the world of capitalism as resting upon and, uh, constituted by a series of cuts of bifurcations, race, class, gender, and the whole, you know, nature culture thing. And, you know, these ways of dividing the world are sort of necessary to get the whole, um, project of, uh, modernity or liberalism, however you want to describe that uh, going. And, you know, for a lot of people that, that is their starting point. And unfortunately, I think it does fail uh, sometimes to address the metaphysics that precedes that project. One of the things that I appreciate about your work is that by entering into this process of world making, of uh, attending to the way that we cut the world in an explicit, conscious way, in a way that's sort of pre-political, I guess, you're helping to move the discussion, I think, further upstream than those divisions, try to kind of get behind them, right? By doing a kind of metaphysics that is 
you know, constructive and comparative as well. You, you invite us to think in a sort of like sort of Heideggerian way to, to think the unthought. I think you're overestimating me, but thank you. Uh, <laughs> we were talking. We were talking about your your look earlier, and you do have a, a young Heidegger, young Heidegger look, you know, with the mustache and the glasses and the hair. Don't insult I, our guests. I'm sorry. I, I it wasn't have, an insult. It wasn't an insult. Sorry. I don't have the belly, and uh, and oh. thank God I don't have the fashion or the political taste. But yeah, yeah right, unfortunately, right. I don't have the mind. But <laughs> no, um, I wish I had a little hut in the Black Forest, though. Yeah, agreed. No, um, no, Heidegger is, is a fundamental philosopher um, and um, possibly a disgusting person. But, you know, it's, it's important to be able to take what you, what you need from what you need. Anyway, but, um, okay, well, to start trying to respond to, to your suggestion, I would like to start also with, with, with your very interesting point on, um, on the separations and the divisions. It is true that there are a lot of these binary separations that are usually assigned, gender-wise, nationality-wise, and so on and so forth. And this reminds me very much of um, that moment where there was uh, the explosion of TV channels. You remember, it was in the 90s, cable TV. 100 channels, and, this, and then they invented in the 1980s. No, they invented, no, 70s, the remote. So you can switch from one channel, the illusion of choice. How wonderful, no? <laughs> so the illusion of choice is exactly the same. The reason why I have, for example, tried to, 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 to embark on the, on, the, um, on the journey that I'm trying, to, that I'm trying to, to develop is not because I want less choice, but because I want more. Not because I want less multiplicity, because I want more. There is an illusion of multiplicity when the number of choices is limited and predetermined. If we considered, if we considered this, this so-called, what I called earlier, sacred aspect within, then you find that by cons- concentrating on the ineffability within things, which leads to the, the possibility of changing the world by reimagining it entirely different. Do you, cons- you realize that the choices are infinite? So paradoxically, what I always find interesting in contemporary culture, I'm afraid to say a lot of, of which comes from the US, is, is not how daring and modern and fascinating and entertaining and dangerous it is, but how lacking ambition and boring and, uh, and banal. Yeah. You know, it, that's, that's often the problem. The, the, the fascinating aspect is also, also the way in which usually uh, a certain age deals with the risks to its own hegemony. If you looked in, the, in other ages of time, look, the antiquity and the past was always considered with fascination and charm as a place from which you could learn because somehow the, the society of a certain age was not scared of the past. It did not have to... Uh, to say that itself, that particular time, the Middle Ages or whatever, the Carolingian Empire was the best time ever, okay? So you could look back into the past and take the wealth. Contemporary Western society seems to have this obsession with demonstrating that it is better than any other age and so on and so forth. But feeling its own weakness, (laughs) then cast this idea that antiquity is boring. The idea that antiquity is boring is very new and is also one of those kind of proper... um, insecurity tricks, <laughs> you know, <laughs> then you, you, try, you, you, you talk ill in front of the, of the woman that you like about that guy that you notice that she looks and he, because he actually is more interesting than you and prettier than you and everything. So like, oh, he's a, he's a dickhead, isn't he? He's so boring. Okay. <laughs> That's also why in, in, my own, in my own work, I, I very often look at ancient sources. 
And that has to do with also with the perception of world making in, in, in the sense in which you were also summoning it. I understand and realize that every society, every frame of sense is a, is a frame of sense, is an invention, is a narrative invention, which is fantastic. It becomes a problem the moment it presents itself as the absolute truth. And it becomes even more problematic the moment it forgets it's a narrative because then a, a number of consequences arise. But when you rem remember that it, it's just a narrative, that it's just a, a, a trick of the creative imagination, then at that point, you realize that to, to a certain extent, you are just as perishable, and to be honest, from the perspective of outside of time, just as already perished as anything that has already perished before. That you're just as past and everything as anything that has already been passed. And then you realize that the familiarity that you have with, um, with the, the true familiarity that you have with Achilles in the, in the Iliad, that you have with the, the, uh, with the, the protagonist of the Bhagavad Gita is much more than that that you have with some sort of like Disney Channel, uh, you know, kid that is there singing songs written for, for, for him or for her. Yeah. Achilles was a really existing person in a world like you. Disney Channel doesn't exist. These things yeah. don't exist. They exist only if exactly like the Marshmallow Man. You know, this, this, is, this is fundamental to understand. Yeah. They, they exist to the extent that we attribute existence to mm. them and allow them to absorb our, uh, our attention and desires, right? Well, yeah, and, and they're, like a, they're like Tinkerbell from Peter Pan, the fairy that doesn't exist once you stop thinking about her, right? It's just weird, like, Cartesian thing, like, if, if you don't think, you don't exist, right? <laughs> it's, it, it's different, though. It's, yeah. um, these things are, are cognitive glitches. I am, I am a smoker. I've been a smoker since I was 14. So uh, it's been now 22 years of smoking. And as an addict, a smoker is an addict, I understand that my need to smoke is not real. You know, it, it's not, you know, I, cigarettes don't give you that addiction physically to that extent and so on. It is a cognitive glitch that I have. But this relationship that I have with my cigarette is based entirely on this cognitive glitch. <laughs> okay. It's, it's, a social, it's a, like a symbolic or social thing, right? It's like, there's there's an aesthetic element too, right? It's it's not just about like the nicotine going into your bloodstream, right? It's it's more than it's that. Bo it's a both end. As someone who yeah. who smoked for about fifteen years, about a pack a day, you know, and then quit, it's both, you yeah. know, because after after even after you quit for years, you you find yourself like at at strange times obsessing about a cigarette, you know. Mm -hmm. Obviously, no, because we our minds are um, not perfectly functioning machines. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. speak for yourself, old. man. We're also we're, we're habitual creatures too, right? So that's a type of ritual that becomes a part of becomes a part of our identity. Yeah. So there are a couple of things there that I thought were interesting. Uh, one was this idea of the forgetting of the past. You know, this Henry Ford's line about that history is bunk. Right? We don't need to understand history because there's nothing important. Be, you know, before the Model T, right? Before industry and you know uh, this building of cars, right? So it's kind of this really interesting futurist. Uh, modality right and but at the same time um i don't you're probably familiar with this a lot of the stuff that's coming out of hollywood and like this culture this culture industry are rehashing of things from the 70s and 80s like we have new star wars movies right we have uh these i mean the comic book movies are, are just kind of repetition of the same story over and over and over again you have like even on like a, the video games but you also have this kind of like a so they're doing remakes of karate kid with cobra kai right so there's all these remakes from like 20 30 years ago so there's that there's like that interesting thing where like the birth of modernity comes out of the Renaissance, which is a, a hearkening back to a pre kind of middle age time back to the ancient Romans and Greek civilization. Right. So you had this kind of rebirth, right. Out of looking back at history at the same time. Now we're living in a time where like 
for pretending we're not looking back while also refeeding and reheating things from like 30, 40 years ago. And then the other thing, the other line I thought was interesting was uh, your political theology that's like non-dual. Like your idea that like you and I are actually of the same kind of infinite cosmic uh, metaphysical essence. We have a particularities, right? We're, we're kind of localized in places differently. Like you're in London, I'm here. But like that same kind of like the infinity is, is incarnated in us at the same time. Like this really interesting non-dual approach to political theology too, I think is an interesting you have going there too so if you want to comment on either one of those yeah i mean it's amazing also incidentally i i I very much love and appreciate also the vocabulary that you use from apophatic to non-duality i think uh, (laughs) language but i i think in the interest of the podcast listeners i will try to tone down a little bit the (laughs) the the specialism of the vocabulary i'll try to explain it but first i will i will grab a thing from the kitchen one second sure Wow. Okay. Very, very, very rich comment, and and there's there's so much in that. Obviously. Okay. So part one has to do with the, with 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 the with the, um, with the reinterpretation of the past and with a certain familiarity towards the past. You have uh, you have brought up, of course, the, the Italian Renaissance and and its and its relationship with the past, which was very interesting. Of course, the interestingly, actually, the um, um, the, the big difference between the, 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 the Renaissance and the Middle Ages is not so much that the Middle Ages did not look back, because the Middle Ages looked back probably even more, probably even more than the Renaissance. But the difference w- was that the Middle Ages looked at, back at the past with a, with a strange of sense, sense of paralyzed reverence. The past was this fantastic golden age of the Roman Empire. We can't really bring it back. It, we are not them. The, the conception of time of antiquity was different from that of progress, as in time went downwards, not upwards. We weren't going up to progress. We were going down into the Kali Yuga, the Hindus would say, towards the disintegration. Uh, so the and here we age, are. The, exactly, the Bronze <laughs> Age and the Iron Age. Yeah. But the Renaissance, for a moment, placed this, waged these bets on something else. And you know, on the possibility of reverting the tide, of bringing back, of us being like them, actually, you know, the possibility of bringing it back. And to a certain extent, they tone down the reverence towards the past to the extent to which it was possible to recreate links of familiarity with them and let them re-inhabit us. I encourage that very much also today. The possibility not to go back to an idealized age, because of course we don't really want physically want to back to go back um, socially to antiquity, for example, slave trade. <laughs> you know? <Right. laughs> That's not that. The point is not representing antiquity again the point is embodying it as in the point is selecting those aspects selecting the union of egoists there is a union of egoists even transtemporally between things and being able to bring back that and to let it re- be re-embodied again in, in our practice for example the relationship that there was between what was understandable and what was not understandable it was necessary for modernity to have Kant and then to have phenomenology to explain to us things that in antiquity were very clear, already very clear. They were the basis, the foundation of Platonism, for example. It was right. the obvious part in Pythagoreanism. It's the, the body of what Heraclitus talks about, and, and so on and so forth. And Empedocles, Plotinus after him, and then Iamblichus and Porphyry and, Pro, and Proclus, and, so, and then the, the pseudo Dionysus. I mean, all these people 
were basing their work as if they had already not only read the entirety of Kant and the entirety of Husserl, but uh, overcome it. That was already given, but we forgot. And then we had to say it again, and that's fine. Um, so that, that was the first, the, the, the part on, 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 the, on the, let's say, uh, resurrection of, the, of, the, of antiquity. The, the second part, here we also need to, to also kind of be specific and clarify that when I, when we, I agree with you that my, my perspective is non-dual. Non-duality basically means that the separation between objects, the fact of having two things, is an illusion. Right. In reality, the essential part of, of things is one that the entirety of the world is one. This is, for example, the, the one message of Parmenides, Eleatic philosopher before, before Plato, and the right. venerable, the, the terrible and venerable Parmenides, as, <laughs> as Plato puts it. But non-duality has to also be specified in the sense that, like, does that mean that you and I are the same thing? Exactly. No. Okay. The separations between things are not false. The separation between things are not illusions, mm -hmm. but they're not true. You can have something that is not false and not true at the same time. <laughs> they're fictive. They are fictive, exactly. And fictive means that it is entirely at the service and in the power of the writer. As a writer, you know, you know that, of course, the characters take, take a life of their own and so on and so forth and all that beautiful things. But this is very nice if you do it on paper. It's not, it's like the consequences, if you do it on paper, you let your characters take a life of their own and slaughter each other and, uh, and, and, and have terrible endings. Because who cares? They are just not real. <laughs> but when, when, when you're dealing with, with other things, with, with, let's say, embodied fictive entities and so on, then it becomes problematic. Right. So it is not false that uh, it is not false that you and I are two completely different people with different lives and so on and so forth. But it's not true either. And so that, that has to be always kept, kept in mind. But before we continue, I think, I was thinking because I promised it earlier, I think it would be important to, to, to disclose some references. Otherwise, it seems that I have a lot of original ideas and I want to make sure to clarify also to what extent I, I'm actually just bringing back ideas from other people. When I was talking about the temple, the beginning, for example, I was, I was talking about uh, the ideas of Henri Corbin. Henri Corbin, extraordinary, French philosopher and many other things in, uh, of the 20th century. He was the first French translator of Heidegger, the French translator of Persian middle, uh, medieval philosophy, Suravard in particular. Extraordinary guy, very influential on James Hillman, the Jungian psychoanalyst. When I was talking about the difference between the sacred and the profane, I was referring to the work of Mircea Eliade. Not such an amazing, fantastic person himself as Corbin, you know, tainted with, with pseudo-Nazism and other things, but uh, one of the most remarkable religious anthropologists ever to have existed. Uh, his work, especially Patterns in Comparative Religion, is a, a masterpiece, and he has set the work in the 20th century on symbolism. When I was talking about the icon, <laughs> I was referring to Pavel Florensky. A, a Russian Orthodox priest, mathematician, electrical engineer, and many, many other things, um, theologian, art historian, one of the two geniuses of the past century who died in a gulag in the 1930s. Um, and he, in particular, his work on, um, on icons in a book called, I think in English, it's called Iconostasis, I read it in Italian. And then in his, in his writing on art, I think it's possible to find in a book called Reverse Perspective in English. Um, in Italian, it's much better known for some strange editorial 
reasons. Um, and then political theology is certainly a part of, of, of the way I look at, at politics also, simply because I, rec I recognize that there is a dimension within the political discourse which in a secular manner could be understood as semiotic, but semiotic is not enough. If you want to push it a little bit more, you go towards Laclau, Ernesto Laclau, Laclau, I never know how to pronounce his name correctly. Um, and it's a Lacanian understanding of political formations. If you want to go a bit further, then you go, of course, towards political theology. Political theology means a number of people like Carl Schmitt and many others. For me, the guide in, within political theology has been Saul Newman, the inventor of post-anarchism, oh, yeah. a um, good friend of mine, and he's guided me. Um, his work has moved, similar to mine, from, um, from post-anarchism to political theology, in the same way that I moved from anarchi individualist anarchist philosophy to theology. More recently, after publishing The Politics of Post-Anarchism and another book called Post-Anarchism, and a book on Max Stirner, uh, is, the, is the thing that bound us at the beginning because we both love Max Turner. And um, now recently he's, he's written an introduction to political theology and he's working now on political theology mainly, okay. which, is, which is also very, very fascinating. One of the guys that you mentioned, uh, Corbin, was one of the references that stood out to me uh, when I was reading through the, uh, the Technique and Magic book. Oh, wow. Um, particularly, particularly the... Uh, what I take to be the sort of ontology of the imaginal that he kind of uh, offers. And I threw it in my Amazon cart because <laughs> I was like, that sounds like something I need to read. And I, but I'm, not, I'm probably not going to get to it anytime soon. So could you give me like a, just a quick uh, preview of, of what his importance for your work and as a thinker in general? Corbin's important to my, importance to my work is absolute. To, to myself, I mean, he's, he's been... When I was saying that Max Turner was life-changing, uh, Corbin was definitely life-changing. And it, I was happy to have read Sterner before Corbin, and then Corbin as a movement forward towards, um, towards uh, after Sterner. If you want very briefly, for, especially for, for the listeners. Yeah. Um, okay. You know when, when you've watched an amazing film and you, and you look at somebody else who hasn't watched it yet and you're like, oh, you're lucky you're watching it for the first time. Okay, it's exactly the same. You're in for a real, real incredible treat. I think a good way to start depends on your inclination. If you're more of a, of a kind of nerdy, bookish kind of historian type, I would suggest to start with history of Islamic philosophy. If you're more of an artistically leaning, mystical type, I would suggest to start with the creative imagination in the... In the Sufism of Ibn Arabi. In any case, which, whatever books you, you start with, the, one of the main ideas within Corbin is, okay, first of all, Corbin always creates his own philosophy, to be honest. If you want him as an historian of, of Islam, as a kind of like absolutely accurate historian of Islam, it's quite questionable. In the same way that if you look at Plotinus as a proper interpreter of Plato, maybe, okay? <laughs> But, uh, but that doesn't mean anything. Plotinus is as amazing as Plato. Uh, and uh, Corben is as amazing as Suravardi, for example, or Mullah Sadra, the, the great Iranian philosopher that he expounds. Based on Suravardi, he focuses in particular on the figure of the angel, which is the key to his entire philosophical system. What is the idea? <clears throat> and remember here that Corben was the first translator of Heidegger. And you see also why that means and why he was, and he was a massive influence on Jungian psychoanalysts like James Hillman. You, you will see exactly what that means. <clears throat> what is this idea? His idea is that 
reality and the world is composed of the things that we can see and the things that we cannot see. The dimensions that come to us and the dimensions that remain hidden within objects. They withdraw within objects, withdraw from us. How to account for this double nature within it? He basically creates an entire phenomenology of, of the world, of, of reality in itself. And he says that within the world, there are many different dimensions. These dimensions are partly um, apparent and partly obscure to each other. The way in which they are apparent to each other is the way in which they function, ange they function angelically towards each other. The angel, in, in, like the Rasul, like the messenger in, in Islam, but the angel is the one that angelos, you know, that brings the news, the messenger, like Hermes, okay? So the, phenom the phenomenal aspect of one dimension of reality towards the next is the angelic aspect of that dimension. But that counts both ways. So in Corben, you not only find a transcendence, so from the world of images as we know them towards more and more up and up and up and up towards the absolutely ineffable, but also down and down and down and down, because the ineffable is as interested and curious to know the other dimensions of reality as the world of languages. It's like okay. Jacob's ladder from Genesis. Yeah. Yes. Uh, but the angels ascending and descending, right? Wait, wait, wait. Yeah. Speaking, of, speaking of Jacob and angels, um, I, I was asking... Uh, my friend Jacob the other day, like um, I'm talking to um, uh, Federico in a couple of days. What should I ask him? He said, uh, ask him if he believes in angels. Well, we have the answer now. <laughs> well, I don't know. I don't know. Okay. If I didn't believe in angels, I wouldn't talk to you right now. I would think that you're an illusion of my mind. <laughs> right. and, th and that's the kind of idea. I, th I think there's an interesting kind of uh, a theory or theology of revelation that you're talking about with this angelic, right? Between the phenomenological and the ineffable. This kind of yeah, this, I, I, I would, maybe that's my creative interpretation of Plato and my Platonian role here, where I'm, I'm listening to this idea of like how the realms communicate between each other through this angelic messenger, this her hermetic or Hermes, right, hermetic order or it's hermetic ordering of phenomenology, and then uh, interpreting that through again. You said the Corban talked about as an interpreter of Heidegger or translator of Heidegger, where we have this withdrawal and this kind of like the phenomenological, uh, um, the physis, the thing that kind of arrives out of itself. The uh, I'm sorry, I'm forgetting the introduction to metaphysics, the kind of the Greek that he had a great works on there, but this idea of the presentation, the phenomenological and the recession. And it seems like even, even in scientific or mathematical discourses, these kind of like quote unquote secular discourses, there's still a way to talk about revelation in this kind of like nuanced form of, of, of the, the messenger, right? <laughs> yeah. So. And I think also another way of, of looking at that particular form, the revelation, and also uh, of the angels, we could use the term the face. Okay, so basically the big Cartesian problem is whether the appearances, the things that we see, were illusions or not. Okay. <clears throat> if they entirely are illusions, then, it's, then there is nobody. I'm here like a, an absolute madman talking to ghosts in my mind. Okay. Our illusions are real too, no? But if illusions are real, they're real then they're not illusions. They are faces. So they are the face of something. They are the revelation of something that exists. Right. This idea of you, me talking to you as actually talking to somebody rather than having a, a, a mad soliloquy within my, my own disembodied psyche floating in space, mm -hmm. my trust in the fact that you exist is my trust in the fact that you have a face, that you are, that what I see when I deal with you is the face of something, somebody. Right. That it means the angel. 
okay, the angel is not the, like uh, that fairy, basically, with, with the wings and, and all that. <clears throat> the angel means exactly this, is the, is the face of things, that when you see things, you see the face of something. Now, that something, however, is not all entirely reduced within the face, in the same way that when I look at you, I don't see the totality of you. Right. Not only physically, there is a part that I don't see, but also ontologically or psychologically or emotionally or in any way I, I accept the part that I see your face your face is a revelation of an, or an aspect of something which tells me go deeper there is more and also tells me probably you will not see ever the whole thing this is exactly the angel now talking back one second about atheism this is also atheism because what people usually call God as the, the face of the ineffable is the angel what usually people in church for the vast majority of the times, not always, obviously, there's fantastic theologians and mystics and uh, everywhere, <clears throat> under any denomination, but most frequently, what people mean as God, as the face of the ineffable, is the face of the ineffable, is the name that they give to have access to the ineffable. The moment they believe that God is God, that's idolatry. Okay, this is Ibn Arabi, for example. Ibn Arabi says exactly this. Right. Or my oh, this is atheism. Atheism is not believing in God because God is the face of God. <laughs> you see what I mean? All right, so part two is coming whenever I get around to editing it. Theme music was provided by Nikki Nine graphic and sound design uh, as well as the outro music that you're hearing now is by Matt Baker oh and a correction last time I misattributed a quote to Walter Kaufman it was Gordon Kaufman so different Kaufman there alright ciao